This is Susanna Hills Podcast. We hope this message becomes a revelation in your heart and will encourage you to live a Christ-centered life. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Here's today's message. Well, welcome everyone. It's a, it's a pleasure to be addressing you on Romans again. And on this occasion, it's probably the crown jewel of the book of Romans, chapter 8. And probably also the crown jewel of all of Christian theology. It's so dense with teaching and it's very weighty with uh, the reality of life in Christ. Um, And for that reason, we actually have to break it into two different parts. And so I'll be covering verses 1 to 17 of chapter 8 tonight. And in line with that, if I were to give it a title, that section, it would be displacing the flesh in view of glory displacing the flesh in view of glory. And really what this section goes on about is the flesh, our position in Christ by what he accomplished in the flesh and the glorified body as the final result of our position in Christ. So that's really what we're going to unpack is the two senses of flesh and then the progression of sanctification to glorification. So let's just commit it to prayer, and then we'll go from there. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to unpack your word, to be transformed by it, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you be here, leading, guiding, teaching through me. That you highlight what needs to be highlighted, and that you help us apply and remember the most important parts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So what I want to do is uh, read chapter 8, 1 to 17. So if you can turn there with me, and then we will unpack verse by verse from there. All right. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So you can get a sense from that, the weightiness of the doctrine involved here. Let's dive into verse 1 then. Therefore, 
there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hey, okay. All right. Unpacking Romans 8, 1 to 17, if you turn there. Starting in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, we need to be mindful of a lengthy, continuous thought between several chapters in Romans. Because it is, after all, one letter. And we have a reference with verse 1 to a reality in Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul was expressing a contradiction between the renewed mind or the human spirit and the law of sin which dwells in the members of the body or the physical body. And then a constant struggle by that contradiction in nature. And at the end of reflecting on that, he rejoices because God in saving us has empowered us to serve God's law willfully. And that is to say with our mind, right? There is a intention that we give ourselves to consciously. So although sin may dwell in our members by our intent to follow the law of God, with the renewed mind, we make the members of the body subservient to God, such that we can use our members to be in service to holiness. And so that there is no condemnation for those in Christ that way. Because we have, first of all, Christ and His righteousness. That's number one. And because of that, we are no longer sons and daughters of rebellion. We are sons and daughters of obedience. And so from this position, there is no condemnation. Should we lapse into sin again on account of the fallen state of, the, of our bodies? Because our intent with Christ's righteousness in us, our intent is to displace those lapses into sin as we journey from one degree of glory to another, into more Christ-likeness. Verse 2 then. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now the law of the Spirit of life is really the fulfilled law. And the law of sin and death is really the law disobeyed. Such that Jesus, having fulfilled God's law, brings us into his freedom from our failure. Moving to verse 3 then. Please as well, uh, this is meant to be interactive. So should you have any questions, feel free to ask. Verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Here is conveyed something of the inherent nature of the flesh, that it is weak. And this weakness is as a result of the fall, where we first disobeyed God, where sin is then perpetually, continually bonded into the members of the body. Or into the body. And this... Sorry, may I ask a question? Yes. If I ask too many questions, please tell me. Okay. <laughs> so we had a discussion now a few minutes ago mm. about discernment. Mm. Isn't this part of that? You, by bringing the members into, into life, yeah. you then know whether it's chaos or whether it's... It's from the Lord. That's, that's how you can gauge it through discerning. That's a tool for dis discerning. That's how I see it. Sure. Would, would that be right? Yes. Um, and discern, discernment in line with what is revealed in the Word in particular, um, that allows us to apply the Word in terms of transformation so that we become more Christ-like. So it would be a case of uh, saying, okay, is this something in the flesh that I'm doing? 
and we'll get to elements of what that is, what the flesh looks like. But So there's an element of discerning the flesh and then there's also discerning what, the, what is of the Spirit and the, the Word, the whole counsel of God's Word helps us in discerning that. That makes sense. So this, this is a way that you, you, in other words, Romans 8 is, is a tool to show you how to begin your discernment. You could say that's, so. That's, that's how I would look at it. You could say so. Although it's more than simply a tool to discernment, it is a window into the reality of what being in Christ really means. means. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. All right. So we have this reality of the sin of, of sin having weakened the flesh. And that being as a result of the fall where we first disobeyed God. And then sin is perpetually in the physical body. And then coming to this word flesh. It's important for us to um, see that there is an emphasis on this word. But also that there, it exists in two different meanings. So we see that it becomes a focus from chapter 7 in Romans. And then throughout chapter 8 and then on into chapter 9. Uh, but it is clear that there are those two different meanings. And the one is merely the physical body. And the other speaks about the sinful nature. The latter, the sinful nature, is evil. And the former is neutral. And this goes against the understanding of the Gnostic heresy that was common in this time period in the Bible. Which really um, thought that the physical body was essentially evil, was evil in and of itself. And so that death would be an opportunity to once and for all shed any connection uh, that the human has, the human being has to a physical representation. Okay, but that is a heresy. It's not in line with the truth. So the distinction that needs to be drawn is that the body is part of that which is fearfully and wonderfully made. The fact that we are, with our body included, the image of God. Sure. But as it hosts sin, it is weakened by it. And so, sin is inherently evil, but the body is not. Is that clear? Mm. And we are made in the image of God, but in the fall... That image was fractured, if you were to think of like a broken mirror. And that fracturing was passed down from generation to generation. But we are nevertheless, broken as we are, still the image of God. And therefore, the physical body as part of that is not itself evil. Going on then into the second part of verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now this phrase, likeness of sinful flesh, conveys form. That is human form. And for sin conveys purpose. But what exactly is it purposed or was this purpose to regarding sin? Was it to entertain sin? Far from it. It was to condemn sin in the flesh, as we see in the last part of verse 3 there. Now, the condemning of sin involved God's outpouring of wrath in judgment on sin. And that is embodied in Jesus on the cross. And the use of flesh here is again neutral. If flesh was inherently evil, Jesus could not have taken on human form. And I think that that shows the distinction conclusively. Could I just ask a question? Mm -hmm. So if we are created then in the image of God. So that means a portion of us is from God. Is God. Um, there is a, a creature-creator distinction that we always have to keep in mind, um, such that, that we cannot cross the divide into what it means to be the creator, the uncreated. 
So uh, God can't, in a sense, be taken apart such that there's something like a divine spark in us that's, that is, you know, of, of his uncreated nature, right? There is still that distinction between us as a creation and him as a creator. But that, that doesn't change the reality that he indwells us. And then we are unified with him. Okay, good question. Yes. sin doesn't control us when we belong to him. Yes. We need to realize our, that we have, we have power over sin, but those that don't belong to him actually don't have any... E exactly right. Control, like sin controls yeah. and people. Yeah. Definitely, and that comes very strongly into the four in Romans. Even from, from, verse, uh, from chapter 6 we saw the reality of enslavement to sin, sort of the powerlessness of being dominated by sin is definitely the case for the lost. On to verse 4 then. Okay, so continuing, it's continuing from verse 3, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now, uh, I want to uh, take some time here to focus on a word that is helpful to understand what's being communicated here. And that word is called imputation. And this was a word used in the Greco-Roman legal language, which really just means that you're crediting something to someone's account. So, a sum of money written in an account book, which would then be given to someone, for example. And Paul is borrowing this understanding of that in Roman culture to show the parallel metaphorically between the Christian and Jesus. Jesus credited the Christian's account with the sum needed to be declared righteous. How was he able to, though? It was by fulfilling the law on our behalf. How could he do it on our behalf? And this is important. He had to be in the form of a human being. It's as though the human form is the account book into which the credit is written. And once we acknowledge this crediting, it is in turn written in us individually. And this written nature of righteousness is actually quite literal in the Bible because we see there's this uh, promise of Jesus' name being written on our foreheads in Revelation 13, 16. Now, a side note here, um, theologians like to use this word imputation to refer to that credited to us to make us truly uh, righteous, justified before God, and then to make some distinction with sanctification, they use the word impartation, which is very similar in meaning to imputation, uh, which is simply to give something to. But this is to say that the journey of renewing the mind, of becoming Christ-like, Christ is as much given to us as justification is given to us. The difference is, in impartation, it is gradual and lifelong. In imputation, it is complete and immediate. And the point is, imputation and impartation help to show that justification and sanctification are both given by God. And to put it in the simplest metaphor that I can, justification is the lump sum into the account book and sanctification is the daily deposit into the account book. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so then considering the, the uh, extra part of verse 4 here, who walk not according to the flesh, here is the evil sense of the word flesh, and that is participation in sin. Sin manifests through the body. So, 
we do not walk according to the flesh. We are in Christ. What do we do instead? And this is where the principle of displacement comes into the, into the fall. But according to the Spirit. Now, this part, this last part of verse 4 is a reference to sanctification. The righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us, that is justification and imputation. The walk according to the Spirit, that is sanctification and impartation. On to verse 5 then. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now that phrase, set their minds, it's important because it communicates that willful and conscious uh, decision to adhere to the flesh. Yes, that's right. That Definitely, yes. When it comes to... Right. Correct. Right, outside of Christ, definitely not. Because the decision is always in terms of um, how Christ fulfills the law. And so, if we are not in Christ, we are not in any sense able to... Uh, Obey in the in the correct sense of the law. Hence, the blood is there to make us holy. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's the justification part that's necessary for any sanctification in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Well, I think that um, it's important to say that they are not condemned by failing to at a point. Um, but it's also important to communicate that it's not a license to be complacent in not doing it or in not obeying in some other sense that is good. Um, so it's just a matter of communicating their position in Christ and then the outflow of that is a sense of delight yeah. that needs to be there in doing good. So just establish the heart. What is the heart um, that, that they're experiencing in trying to do something good? If you can ask them, are they experiencing fear around their lack of being able to do good? Then th there needs to be a ministering around their position in Christ. If, there isn't, if they don't know about that position in Christ, it may be that they don't actually, they're not actually aware of what the gospel means. God gives you the choice to either read your Bible or not read your Bible. My understanding is if you don't read the Word, you will never, you won't grow in, in Christ. That's right. Remain where you are. Yeah. And that the more you read your Bible, the closer your relationship with God will become. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the answer you need yeah. you're looking for. I, yeah. I sort of get that, that yeah. feeling that if you don't read your read the Bible, you cannot feed your spirit. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's, that's yeah, absolutely. And that's why the words often talk talked about in terms of food, right? All right. So then on to, to verse 5, the sense of um, uh, according to the flesh and the setting of the mind and on the things of the flesh, right? So we have that intentionality and the things of the flesh, what are they? Well, we have Paul as he lists them, Galatians 5, 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, discord, jealousy, rage, rivalries, divisions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. 
it's quite a dizzying list, but it's to me, it's sobering because that there are so many ways in which rebellion to God can be manifest. Um, it just shows the, how avert the, the flesh is in its rebellion to God. Right. Now, in contrast, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds, again, intentionality, on the things of the Spirit. And what are they? Well, we know that it's in line with the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, and faithfulness. But then it's also about, um, it's also multifaceted in how we can experience that fruit as it's applied to different things. As we see in Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, right, these, are, these are very broad categories, whatever is noble, whatever right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So there is a broadness in that experience of walking in line with the Spirit as well. But what you, what you notice again is think about such things. Again, relating to the mind, setting the will to or the conscious effort to displace the old self or the sinful nature in favor of the spiritual. On to verse 6 then. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And here we have, again, as is common, this end result after the pursuit of something. So if the pursuit is the flesh, the end result is death. If the pursuit is the spirit, the end result is life and peace. Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Just to focus on, on that again, that phrase, hostile to God, thinking about the various ways in which rebellion against God can be expressed, it shows that there is this violent nature to rebellion. So it's like enemy of God, hostile to God. Last part of verse 7. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If we are outside of Christ, and this comes to your earlier question there, we are incapable of being anything else but enemies of God. The primary act of obedience that is required is the acknowledgement of Jesus and his finished work and his lordship over our lives. Outside of that, there can be nothing that allows us to obey with the right heart. And so we can't even begin the process of obedience. Verse 9. Sorry, I don't quite understand what you, you said. Right. So begin the of obedience. Why? It's, because, it's because the Spirit is dead, basically. Outside of Christ, the Spirit is dead. And so there isn't the capacity to respond at the heart level with the authenticity required for a journey of obedience in anything good. But you will never be obedient. That is, that, is another, that is another statement, though. But the, the important part is that your heart is in the position to begin right relationship with God. It doesn't mean you won't fail. It just means that the heart is in the right place to begin the journey and thereafter increasing glory. The journey into Christ-likeness can actually begin. Okay, I understand now, mm. A new believer has a problem with that because when he starts his journey with, the, with God and he makes a mistake, he does not know that he can again turn back to God who will forgive him, but he cannot keep continue repeating the same evil sin time and time again and God will forgive him time and time again. That's right. You, you, you're onto something very important there, except that the believer 
is called to be part of community for discipleship in line with the word, such that it will be made aware to them this course of sanctification, where they can't just keep sinning. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> then it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> you never please God, but then reminding, oh, wait, okay, verse 9. <laughs> mm, yes. I'm not controlled by the sinful nature, controlled by the Spirit. Like, I think yeah. if they could grasp verse 9, mm. the rest will be. will fall in place, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a community is definitely one aspect in discipleship, but the way that we are able to even disciple in line with the truth is by the Spirit, right? The Spirit as He reveals truth to us, as He ministers to our spirit what the truth is. And that's what verse 9 is beginning to touch on. So verse 9 then, you, that is believers, you believer in Christ, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. And that is to say that you have that heart to begin obeying authentically. On from there. Are not in the spirit, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And here again, as we touched on in Romans 6, is the immersive reality of us in the Spirit and the Spirit in us, which quickens our heart to obey. Last part of verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now here I want you to think of the king's ring seal, right? You know the, the ring that a king used to seal a letter uh, with the wax. Now the article that it seals belongs to the king by that impression that it makes. Because it's marked with the king's authority and the reference to his identity. And so it is for us who are sealed by the Spirit. I'm thinking of Ephesians 1.13 here, which says that we are, in fact, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And that is to say that we have His identity impressed upon us for in transformation. So we know that we belong to Him and it is seen that we belong to Him. On to verse 10 then. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Mm. Now, uh, a synonym for this neutral sense of the word flesh is body. And this points to the reality of sin being something that indwells the, the members of the body, right? In order to corrupt it. And such that the moral result of any person who participates in sin is at least physical death and at most the death of the human spirit, which is to say the eternal death. Last part of verse 10, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Yeah, here is a reference to the inner man or the human spirit. And the reason it is capitalized, the spirit there in the last part of verse 10 is capitalized, is because it's referring to the Holy Spirit as it indwells the inner man. And so our physical bodies experience death because of sins indwelling, but our spirit experiences life because of the Holy Spirit's regeneration in His indwelling. We experience death in the physical body, but life in our spirit by the Holy Spirit. But this is only one part or the first part of the regeneration of the spirit. It doesn't end here. It's only meant to allude to how this body is going to be shed for something greater, but not just to be a disembodied spirit. That's not the sense. As we see in verse 11 here, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also, and here's the key part, give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is the promise of the glorified body as it displaces this physical body. Because the reference in that verse is actually to 
Jesus' body as it was raised to the glorified body. Jesus in the resurrection wasn't restored to the ordinary human body, but to the glorified body. He was the first fruits from among the dead that way. If we look at 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, the Spirit is actually given to us as a guarantee of that coming reality of glorified resurrection. So, the promise here, as we see it in verse 11, is actually eternal life applied to our mortal bodies so that it becomes immortal or incorruptible. Right. Verse 12 then. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And that phrase, debtors, we are debtors, is really simply, we are ones owing something. The context of what is owed is devotion. We are, not we, we are actually left with the negative, which implies what we are to give ourselves to. So the negative is, not to the flesh, and that then implies that what we are to devote ourselves to is the spirit. So, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And now we have, in verse 13, the consequences, and again, the um, contrast in terms of the Spirit. Verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, this phrase uh, is very important to address uh, at, at length. Um, you will die. Now, we have the reiteration of the end results, according to the flesh, death, according to the spirit, life. But there are two layers to this consequence of death. And this is sobering. The first reality or layer is physical death by the pursuit of sin. Now, for comparison, we have Paul's warning to the believers in 1 Corinthians 11.30. Now, we know that the Corinthian church was uh, commonly fell into sin, and they could, be, could have been classed as, as carnal Christians uh, in the time of Paul's address to them, strictly. Um, and we see that in 11 verse 30, Paul is bringing up this issue of their incorrect celebration of communion. What they were doing is actually, it's understood in the, in the context or believed in the context that they were bringing their meals from their houses to the gatherings for the celebration of the Lord's Supper and communion in order to upstage by showing their social standing or their economic standing. And so that would be completely missing the point of the celebration of communion and instead focused on the self and what can be achieved in the flesh. So it's completely missing the communion uh, with, um, with Christ in his sufferings, the result of it being resurrection. It's focusing entirely on earthly things. And so this is the thing that he's rebuking in that time. And he says that the result of this flesh focus was that some had fallen asleep early. That is to say they experienced physical death early. So he says that they were actually guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord because they missed the point. There was no reverence. But now the second layer to this aspect of death through the pursuit of sin is the reality of apostasy. And this is more serious. And this is actually the willful and consistent turning away from God till the eventual complete renouncing of God and Jesus by a lack of faith. And apostasy leads to a forfeiting of salvation. Note the word forfeiting and not losing. Forfeiting implies a willful giving up, but losing can imply an accidental loss. So say in a manner of accidentally falling out of Christ. That is far, far from possible. 
To support this view, let's consider a later chunk of Romans, chapter 11, from verse 21. Here, Paul is speaking about the cultivated olive tree and the wild olive tree. The cultivated olive tree being a metaphor for Israel and also, more broadly, a covenant relationship with God. So let's pick up from verse 21. They, Israel, were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. That is to say, reverent, like as in the other passage, work, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, that's Israel, he will certainly not spare you either. Take notice, therefore, of the kindness and severity of God. Severity to those who fell, but kindness to you if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Now, the cultivated olive tree is again the metaphor for covenant relationship with God. Israel was to be the early example of this covenant relationship between people and God. But through Christ, he was the full, the, the complete expression of the covenant relationship with God. But even though there are people in Christ, if they choose unbelief, they will be, they will be cut from Christ. So the passage in Corinthians, then, to summarize, which conveys carnal Christians, and the uh, passage in Romans, the later late passage in Romans, conveys the sense of death as the end result of the flesh, but in differing degree. Corinthians, example of carnal Christians, physical death, apostasy, the extreme end of carnal Christianity, is to be cut from Christ. Now, moving on from here, but um, the last part of verse 13, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, if we see here, again, the intentionality is very much towards displacing the sinful flesh by means of the spirit so it cannot be done unless there is the new nature in you and that is only by the spirit re renewing you to highlight the emphasis of um, displacement of the old nature by the new i don't think there's a better passage than ephesians 4 from verse 17. yeah paul says now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, so seared conscience, right? And have, and have given themselves up to sensuality, given themselves up, so there's a sense of enslavement again, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self. You get the sense of this displacement. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil." Let the thief no longer steal, but rather, displacement, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only 
such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Do you hear the emphasis of this displacement? It is very important. On to verse 14 then. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. To have the Spirit of God is the evidence of adoption. And that's another key word in Romans. But by adoption, we take on the likeness of God's nature. It is not simply that we are legally part of God's family. It is that we actually are in His likeness, the likeness of His nature. And so there's a deeper familial connection. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Remember in Romans 6 that we are said to be slaves to righteousness. So the spirit of slavery is not a reference to slavery in general. It's rather specifically slavery to fear. Now, as the New Living Translation puts it, it's more of a thought-for-thought translation. The ESV, as I've been reading it, is a word-for-word. So sometimes there's some uh, more complex uh, sentence constructions in the ESV, but the New Living Translation gives the sense here. You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. And also, the sense of fear here is estrangement, uncertainty, insecurity, and that in turn motivates a striving to prove oneself. So the reference is actually to the whole Judaic system, you know, with the rabbinical laws, the rabbis adding on traditions of men so that they can feel more secure in having not fulfilled the law or striving to prove that they have, but failing miserably. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the contrast to this fear is adoption, and so also then belonging, sonship, familial connection, and a deep affection and certainty of one's position as one beloved. We know, again, that perfect love casts out fear. Verse 16, drawing to a close here. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is meant to convey the extent of our certainty as ones who are beloved. That God Himself is a witness of our position in Him. There can't be anything more certain than God as a witness to the fact. Verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. To be heirs of Christ is not only to receive eternal life. It's crucially also to receive eternal dominion. What were the two things lost in the fall? Eternal life and eternal dominion. These are restored to us in Christ. What does Jesus say in Revelation 3.21? To the one who overcomes, I will grant the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Such a profound sense of unity with Christ that, should, that we should be so privileged to be seated with Him. And that is a symbol of the highest authority, the throne of God. Scripture also says that we, in line with this authority, will be the ones that judge angels, 1 Corinthians 6.3. So the sense of this authority uh, is really an authority that's over the whole of the created order. And that was the original sense, to be 
ones who have dominion over the earth, reflecting God's authority as his image bearers to rightly judge the world and govern the world. Lastly, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now note that there is that condition again, as it is also there in Revelation 3.21, right? One who overcomes. The condition is the perseverance in the faith. And that looks like practically denying yourself. It looks like taking up your cross and following Jesus. It looks like turning aside from those who would oppose you to follow Christ. And that, as Jesus himself says in Luke 9.23 and elsewhere, if we don't deny ourselves, we don't pick up our cross and walk, we can't be his disciples. It doesn't mean we can't fail at points, but we need to have the heart set on following him that way. Now, in line with this idea of glory, how we persevere in the faith in view of this suffering and self-denial. Jesus gives us the example. He experienced the worst possible extent of suffering on that cross. But he's, Scripture says that it was because of the joy that he saw in his future that he was able to bear the cross. And so it is also for us that we need to keep the participation in the future glory, in his glory, in mind, as we walk selflessly. As Paul says later on in chapter 8, I am convinced that the suffering that we currently experience is not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And this is glory manifest in the glory, the glorified body, with all sin displaced at last from our members, and so, therefore, all weakness displaced from our members. Thus is the fully sanctified human. And so, to end, I want to encourage us to reflect on this coming glory as we live out our daily lives. This is the means by which we displace our fleshly inclinations to lay hold of glory. Let's pray, folks. Father, thank you so much for the richness of your word, that we can position ourselves to be transformed by it. Father, I ask that you help us to keep the view of the coming glory as we follow you selflessly. I thank you that we are not enslaved to fear, but we are one's beloved, and we know that we can face anything because of that. Bless us as we go from your Lord. I thank you for growth in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for today's message. Don't forget to check out our website or visit City on a Hill International on Instagram or Facebook for our updates, celebration times, or ways you can get involved. We are also streaming our message on Facebook Live, so make sure you join us or share the post. Thanks again for checking out our podcast. We'll see you soon.